Today, the topic, America's War on Drugs, a failure for domestic policies and international relations. My guest, our first guest, I should say, is Professor Bruce Bagley. Professor Bagley is a professor of political science at the University of Miami's Department of International Studies. He is also its chairperson. Over the years, he has specialized in globalization, the war on drugs and drug trafficking, Latin American politics and security issues. He is also co-editor of the Journal of Inter-American Studies and World Affairs. He serves as an adjunct professor at another institute in Colombia, and in the past was an assistant professor in the School of Advanced International Studies, Johns Hopkins University. Nice to have you with us today. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> for, for many people, we just don't think about a war on drugs. We're, it's not on anyone's agenda. It's not only the talking points for candidates in elections. But in spite of it not being something we talk about, it certainly has a way of impacting us. We have anywhere between 2.1 and 2.4 million Americans incarcerated at any given time. We also have had, now then think of the number of people that would impact, generally in the neighborhood of about five people per family. So you're talking about 12 million families. We also have had at least 7.5 million people previously incarcerated. Now you're talking about 35 million. So now we're up to around 45 million people who have been incarcerated. The largest single percentage of those are for drug-related crimes. At any given time, we will have a politician telling us why that we should get tougher on drugs. We then hear about Mexico and what are the narco, we call them narco-terrorists, though others would prefer narco-criminals where they, because their main intent is not terrorism as such, but it's rather pure unmitigated greed and using any method of violence necessary to maintain their positions and control over their market. 48,000 on the very low end, and many suggest that it's as high as 100,000 dead uh, since the president, Calderon, uh, made an official war on drugs in that country with our support, billions of dollars we've given. There was a time when many Americans that I know were going to retire down to Panama or to one of the other beautiful tropical paradises in Central or South America. Costa Rica was very popular. And then came the reality that Colombia was not the only place that was the epicenter of cocaine dealing and growing and transport. And then the whole... Uh, entire scourge of the criminal element behind these drugs move north. So virtually all of Central and South America is now today in some way impacted. America's answer is simple, and the American media has parroted this. Militarize. Militarize more of your police. Bring in more via of our high-tech uh, drones and surveillance and uh, get tough on them. Then we have, I'm laying these all out as a picture, and then from this picture I'm laying out, I'm going to ask you to take us as in detail as you want without any inter interruption from me in your, uh, what you see as the defining issues we should discuss and know about in ways that the average person would know that there are some solutions and possibly what I believe is decriminalization of all this. In any case, an, an adjunct to this is the privatization of our prisons, 
where groups of lobbyists have descended upon policymakers and governors, given them large amounts of campaign money, providing that they push for more privatizing of the jails and getting longer prison terms for the prisoners, including drug-related. Another side of this issue is Afghanistan, arguably one of the largest places in the world that's growing poppy, used as heroin. And yet we had Colin Powell, at that time Secretary of State, giving large subsidies to the Northern Alliance, uh, who were the warlords, who owned these fields and profit immensely from them, who took our money and continued to grow poppies. And yet we've had this unsavory relationship, a kind of a hypocritical relationship. We're really tough on people that smoke marijuana or use crack or methamphetamine. But if we, the United States government, happens to have allies who are in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq, and they happen to be growing poppies, well, we'll look the other way. And people are confused, much like Vietnam and the Golden Triangle. So that said, no one ever talks about what it's like to be a kid that is put in jail for using, possessing some drugs, and how that system alters their life. It's as if we have this very moralistic position, we don't care. If you committed the crime, do the time, your fault, not ours. And I'm saying, hold on a second. Let's stop for a moment and just dissect this enormous problem because you've had now 40 years of an official war on drugs. You've had 40 years as an official war on cancer. The war on cancer has become a medical Vietnam, no victory. And I don't see any gains in the war on drugs except ruining an awful lot of lies. The form is yours. Take us through it step by step. Dissect this. Let us know why each piece of this dissected puzzle is important for us to understand. Well, you've laid out quite a broad panorama, and it might take us actually um, a very long time to be able to um, sort of do justice to each of those parts. But let me give it a, 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 an effort here. Um, from my perspective, the U.S. war on drugs, the U.S.-led war on drugs, um, which is 40 years old if you start with um, Richard Nixon, 1971. Um, you could actually begin before because the Harrison Act of 1914 began to make all of these drugs illegal. Uh, I wrote an article called The New Hundred Years War um, at one point, which I thought uh, was you know, basically an optimistic article because after 100 years from 1914 to 2014, I thought that we would recognize that these efforts that we have had to, in effect, suppress production um, or eradicate production abroad, to interdict um, the flow of drugs into the United States and to incarcerate people who run afoul of our anti-drug laws, would run its course and that we would realize that we had expended a huge amount of money and a huge effort in a failed war on drugs, not only a failed war on drugs, but one that's counterproductive. Indeed, I estimate that we've spent roughly a trillion dollars in the last 40 years. Um, that's money that we could have spent in other ways. A trillion dollars that has not solved our problem at home and has only allowed the problems abroad to become deeper and more serious as we contaminate country after country. The war on drugs is not simply a failure, it's counterproductive, and it's 
siphoned off resources from the United States, this trillion dollars that I'm mentioning. We spend roughly $20 billion a year at the federal level, another $20 billion a year at the state level. We require countries around the globe to expend their scarce resources on all of this and to, in the process, generate huge amounts of uh, violence. Let's start at home. In the United States, um, as you mentioned, we have roughly 2.3 million people in jail at any given time, a large number of people out of jail on parole. Of those 2.3 million people, which is the largest number of people in jail of any country in the world, um, at least 600,000 or more are in jail for what are essentially victimless crimes, um, uh, marijuana smoking and these kinds of things. The smaller numbers are in jail for trafficking or more violent-related crimes. Um, the consequences for society are that we spend, in a state like California, $49,000 per year per person per, uh, that we jail, that we warehouse. Um, the state of California is under court order right now to either build $6 billion worth of new prisons, um, release 20% of the prison population because of overcrowding, or send them to other states where they would be incarcerated. In a state like Louisiana, where uh, a prisoner per year costs roughly $30,000, you get a slightly better deal, so California is beginning to send them out. But the bottom line is we're expending a huge amount of money. The poverty level for a family of four in the United States is $22,500 a year. We could, for the price that it costs us to incarcerate one person for a drug-related crime in the state of California, a nonviolent often victimless crime, uh, we could support a family, two families of four um, at, at or slightly above the poverty level. We are expending these resources and we are destroying especially young people's lives. We've already sacrificed one generation. We're probably sacrificing another because once young people are placed into the prison system, convicted and placed in the prison system, they are felons. They come out with a felony record. We all know what that means in terms of future employment. Uh, many people in the United States do not know that uh, uh, young people are denied loans to go back to school uh, from the federal government. They can't get access to them. They can't get access to public housing. They can't get uh, professional uh, credentials or licenses, uh, whether it's on Wall Street or to operate uh, um, heavy machinery or airplanes or anything else. We are sacrificing that group. Once we send these people into prison. We're sending them into schools for scoundrels. We are, in essence, making them increasingly less adaptable to the needs of our uh, modern American society. That kind of policy, in my opinion, is a fundamental error and one that we need to correct. We need to begin to think about uh, juvenile courts that don't give people felony records, that don't send them to um, jail on the first and second offenses if they are not um, involved in uh, violent um, crimes with arms and other things. If these are not violent crimes, then we should at first attempt to um, to restore them, uh, send them back to school, um, demand that they um, undertake a vocational training, and if necessary, psychological training, and we should make that available to them. So we have not dealt effectively with the youth population or demand. We have not invested, as we should, in effective programs of prevention and education. 
The RAND Corporation has estimated that investments in education and prevention are 15 times more effective than supply-side controls trying to stamp out drugs abroad um, or even in the state of California or trying to interdict them. And yet we spend 70% of all of our money on that. We need to reorient these policies and have um, more youth-friendly because the youth are the people who do most of the drugs. You're introduced into drugs usually by peer pressure, not by dealers, um, starting in your early teens or even preteens. By the time you're in your late 20s, um, most people have you know, run the course with drugs. Um, they have families. They need to, to go to work, uh, earn money, you know, keep a job. So that we're really concerned mostly with teenagers and uh, 20-somethings. We could do much better on prevention and education. We could do much better by not jailing them, and it would be far cheaper, um, even if we don't consider issues like uh, decriminalization. So on the first point, we need to address the issues of demand in a more upfront fashion. Where we do have problems of addiction, or by the way, alcoholism, we need to begin to address those problems through programs of treatment and rehabilitation, which would be a far better way to spend our money than trying to warehouse people in our prison system and make them essentially non-citizens once they get out. When people do get out, they're on parole and they can be easily violated and thrown back into jail, and that very often happens. But we have no programs for their adaptation into our society. Um, in fact, we deny them the wherewithal to go back to school and do those kinds of things. It's more likely if you are a young black man in the state of Florida between the ages of 18 and 25 that you will end up in the prison system than you will in the university system in the state where I currently live. That that's completely unacceptable, in my opinion. It's anti-American. It's not the way that we should be going about dealing with these kinds of problems. So demand is the first area that we have to look at and what we do with people who are caught up in it. We also need fundamental prison reform. We are warehousing far too many people at far too great a cost. And indeed, if there's a ray of light here, um, it's not at the national level where the debate has been frozen, where there is virtually any time any politician um, on the center or the left raises his voice and says perhaps we should reconsider our drug policy and our so-called war on drugs. Basically, they um, lose all their funding, they uh, lose the electorate, and then they lose their positions. So there's been no debate at the national level. Where the debate is taking place in the United States with regard to the drug issue it is not, um, you know, in the Republican debates that we have been seeing in 2011 and 12. It's not even in the Democratic Party at the national level. It's taking place at the state level. Um, the Proposition 19 to legalize marijuana in 2010 came forward because California can no longer afford the kinds of incarceration policies that this war on drugs has led us to. All 50 states are broke and undergoing a fiscal crisis. They need to find alternatives that are both cheaper and more effective. That kind of experimentation um, has therefore led states to begin to think about alternatives, and that's a positive sign, to not jail people, to think about programs of prevention and education, treatment and rehabilitation before we think about making um, our young people into felons. Um, prison reform that would involve uh, youth courts, right, and alternatives to jail time would be 
um, significant advances. So if we could begin to look more effectively at demand on the one, one hand and on, at prisons on the other, we could go a long way towards reducing both the fiscal burden and the severe human damage that we're doing um, to youth in general and especially to minority youth and poor youth around this country because blacks are 10 times more uh, likely to be thrown into jail for drug-related crimes than, than, than middle-class white kids are. We haven't been able to do that for some pretty basic reasons. There is a kind of ideological or even religious consensus in our country against, um, uh, you know, sort of being more flexible and adopting more pragmatic policies towards drugs. We tried um, to prohibit alcohol once, and we backed away from it, in part because there are several religions that don't um, prohibit alcohol. But every major religion, you know, Catholicism, Christianity uh, in all of its variations, uh, Protestantism, uh, the Jewish faith, and the Muslim faith, they all are down on drugs. So that background of a kind of ideological, almost religious or puritanical consensus is reinforced by mm, fear-mongering, especially among the middle class. And it's the middle class that fears that John and Jane, right, will end up in... Their kids will end up in schools. It's led us to adopt draconian policies about selling drugs within a thousand yards of schools that basically, you know, um, send people away uh, and up the river for 10 years or more. That fear among the middle class, which began with the crack boom, has simply deepened in this country. And if you combine that with the way in which we go about our elections, particularly for the House of Representatives, where we reelect all 435 every two years, and we have had a kind of constant auction. Um, if, you know, 10-year mandatory sentences are not enough um, to stop the drug plague in the United States, then politicians, instead of rethinking that policy, say, no, maybe we should make them 15 years minimum mandatories. Um, we had 100 times more severe penalties for crack than we did for powdered cocaine, although uh, you can make crack out of powdered cocaine in your kitchen, and people do. Um, we have reduced those under Obama, but only partially there's still eight to ten times more severe penalties for the poor man's form of cocaine than there is for powdered cocaine. So those are two really critical issues at home in the United States. There are other dimensions. We need far more community-based policing. We need far more recreational opportunities. We need to have um, the, the possibility of offering youth both jobs and education and hope in their lives, and we have been failing as a society uh, in doing that. The same kind of obdurate or stubborn attitude to stick with a policy that has failed and has been counterproductive here at home, which has not reduced, right, in any significant way the societal and economic costs that we're paying, is reproduced abroad. The United States has been, you know, conducting um, this war on drugs. It has been leading the effort for some 40 years. And there are sort of three basic truths that you can see occurring in the parts of the world that I study most closely, especially Latin America. The first is that we have seen a constant balloon effect in terms of areas of cultivation or uh, growing of um, uh, <laughs> the, the, the drugs that are uh, considered illicit, specifically coca leaf and heroin, um, and to a lesser extent, of course, marijuana. Um, in 1985, to give you an example, um, 65% of 
of all coca leaf that is used to convert uh, uh, coca leaf, uh, that is used to to make cocaine, refined cocaine or powdered cocaine, was grown in Peru. Sixty-five percent in 1985. Twenty-five percent was grown in Bolivia. Um, with the advent of the war on drugs and its its push forward over the 1980s and into the 1990s, we shifted the areas of growing from the southern Andes, particularly uh, Peru and Bolivia, northwards to Colombia, so that by the year 2000, Colombia was growing 90% of all the coca leaf. Now that we have pushed very hard through Plan Colombia, um, since 2000 on uh, Colombia, we're seeing... Uh, the resurgence of coca growing once again in Peru and Bolivia. We haven't solved the problem. We've just ballooned it out into new areas and then back. There's an ebb and flow in this process. The overall production of coca leaf and of cocaine has remained relatively constant for the last 30 years. It responds much more to demand than it does to the government efforts such as those of the United States or governments that uh, work with us um, to suppress it. So the balloon effect has spread the problem around South America and contaminated country after country. There's a second effect um, uh, of this war on drugs. We very often, in a kind of whack-a-mole game, go after the drug cartels in Colombia. The famous ones were Medellin and Cali, the Norte del Valle cartel in, in the western part of the country. Those cartels have been largely cut down to size or eliminated, but new ones have proliferated. In Colombia, they're now 300. And by pushing on these cartel organizations and cutting them down to size, we achieve some good things. I, I think it's important not to allow um, major cartels to challenge the national security of governments or to terrorize entire countries. But we have driven these organizations from one country to another. So we focus on Colombia. And then there is what I call the dispersal effect, or I sometimes label it the cockroach effect. Uh, when you go into a kitchen, um, say, of a, a student at the University of Miami and flick on the lights at night and they haven't cleaned up, the cockroaches run um, out of the room. Where do they go? They go into the next room. They go into the next apartment. Um, in my analogy, they go from Colombia into other countries. And so we have driven through this cockroach effect, uh, organized crime, northwards towards Mexico. Over the last uh, few years of the 1990s and much of the, the first decade of the 2000s, we saw the cockroach effect driving um, organized crime northwards to Mexico. Um, the United States in 2008 adopted the so-called Merida Initiative. We combined forces with the, the president of Mexico, Felipe Calderón, who had decided at our urging to militarize the struggle in Mexico um, since December 1st, 2006, when he took office. He's about to leave office on December 1st, 2012. And of course, the problem is worse than ever. He didn't solve it in, uh, in Mexico. And the Merida Initiative, which has cost the United States several billions after we spent $8 billion on the Plan Colombia in Colombia to drive them northwards, we're now driving some of the organized crime groups out of Mexico, but they're going to Guatemala. They're going into Honduras in Central America. So we now are confronting the need to send American troops and drones, by the way, into Central America in states that are teetering on the brink of narco states, such as Guatemala. But it doesn't stop there. The Meriden Initiative and the Calderon efforts combined with those of the United States are driving the cocaine traffic that surged from Colombia northwards back out of Mexico into Central America. 
back into Colombia, where there is renewed uh, violence and uh, surging drug trafficking organizations. They've also increasingly contaminated Venezuela um, under Chavez, who has either looked the other way or possibly condoned some of this. 52% of all the refined cocaine that goes to Europe now, which is a booming market, um, goes through Venezuela. Ecuador has been contaminated, and we're seeing the recontamination of the Caribbean countries, everything from the Dominican Republic and Haiti to Puerto Rico and Cuban territorial waters. So rather than stop this process by spending these billions, actually a trillion dollars, what we have done is push it around. Uh, we played a kind of whack-a-mole game in which we declare victory in Peru, and it moves to Colombia. Then we declare victory through Plan Colombia in Colombia. We drive it north to Mexico, and we are currently in 2000, the beginning of 2012, beginning to declare partial victories in Mexico, and we're seeing it um, flow back through the uh, balloon and cockroach effects into Central America, and you can bet your bottom dollar that the United States is now gearing up for major programs and major expenditures in Central America. Um, we haven't even considered the fact that consumption alongside this process of organized crime spreading around has also grown. Well, the United States has had some some success with prevention and education. Um, we could have a lot more if we actually expended those resources. Consumption of cocaine, and that's the drug that I'm focusing on most right now, um, has been globalized. The second largest consuming cocaine-consuming country in the world today is Brazil. Um, 20 years ago, Brazil hardly knew what cocaine was. The third is Argentina. The fourth is uh, Spain. The European Union consumes almost as much cocaine today as does the United States, which is an incredible expansion of cocaine consumption in Europe. And by the way, they pay three times the price that we pay in the United States per gram or per metric ton. This, the, this, this process of pushing around the drug trade without coming to grips with either the cultivation and the peasant populations, right, that are uh, involved in that because they have no alternatives, uh, the refiners and the traffickers, right, that simply move from country to country, has continued the flow of drugs into the United States despite our efforts and has continued to produce a constant stream of young people who experiment with drugs. And rather than being receiving treatment or receiving um, education opportunities and other kinds of recreational opportunities, we simply thrown them into jail. This entire process, not only a failure in the war on drugs, it's been counterproductive for United States interests at home, for the next generation of Americans, and it's cost us an arm and a leg. Well, we have basically sacrificed country after country in South America, and by the way, abroad, there are 11 states in, in Africa um, that are now caught up in this. The president of Guinea-Bissau was just shot down because he was probably caught uh, involved with drug trafficking organizations and on the take, but we're seeing it around the globe. It undermines democracy. It destabilizes country after country, and by the way, in many areas, provides opportunities for terrorist organizations to take advantage of the drug trade and the money laundering that goes on and finance their activities. That's exactly what the Taliban has been doing, and to some extent al-Qaeda previously, in Afghanistan. Afghanistan, which the United States has occupied with American troops since 2001, produces 93% of the world's refined heroin. 
That's after 10 years of American troops in Afghanistan. Our militarization of Afghanistan hasn't worked, and it is, you know, increasingly destroyed that country. Well, heroin continues to flow out of Afghanistan through Central Asia uh, and Russia into Europe, um, expanding consumption all, all along the trail, or through Pakistan. Um, and it has financed the Harkani networks and it financed the Pakistani Taliban and other groups. We simply have not been able to get a grip on that problem either. The idea that the war on drugs has been successful is, is borders on the ludicrous. It has, in fact, produced exactly the results that any rational um, uh, actor would see as counterproductive and would lead us to um, reassess what we have been doing. But given our institutional electoral cycle where we re-elect 435 members of the House of Representatives each year, and they simply engage in a kind of hardline auction to see who can throw more people in jail for longer periods of time, no matter what the costs to the young people are, no matter what the cost to society are, is simply the wrong way to go. Mexico is one of the very best examples. Um, Mexico, after the Colombians were... Uh, with the assistance of the United States through Plan Colombia, able to drive some of the criminal organizations out of Colombia, certainly not all of them, and there is the resurgence I mentioned. Mexico, over the last 10 years, has borne the brunt of the war on drugs. Um, the government estimates that uh, well over 45, now close to 50,000 have died. There are independent uh, estimates of 100,000, as you mentioned, who have died. And that doesn't even begin to touch. To, to address the issues of loss of economic growth potential, uh, the hopelessness of the young people that are thrown in jail in places like Mexico, the random violence and insecurity that plague that country and that continue to plague it today. Under these circumstances, it seems to me that it's long beyond the time when we should consider the consequences of this 100 years war or the last 40 years of the modern phase of the war on drugs, that we should begin to look for solutions that work. There are a lot of people who absolutely oppose legalization of drugs in any form. Uh, decriminalization is an intermediate part of it, especially if there are young people involved in nonviolent crimes. We should think about alternatives to jail for them. It would be cheaper. It would be wiser, and it would be more humane to do that. But there has been no flexibility. Perhaps we'll see better and greater experimentation at the state level. But to date, there has been a, a, a block or a break on any kind of innovation in our policies. And if the United States is not willing to experiment, then other countries find it very difficult because we are so large and so powerful that we can intimidate other countries into backing away from anything that smacks of depenalization or being soft on drugs. Even though we have seen in the last couple of years, uh, most recently at the end of 2011, reports backed by increasing numbers of Latin American, prominent Latin American politicians, uh, former President uh, uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso of Brazil, former President Cesar Gaviria of Colombia, um, former President Ernesto Zedillo of Mexico, joined by former Secretary of State George Schultz and many others who have said that it's time to reorient um, 
our uh, drug policies towards solutions that work, that work for young people, that work for the societies that, involve, that are involved, that work f- towards uh, deepening democracy, not undermining it and corroding it. And we have begun to see, even among our allies in Latin America, um, President Juan Manuel Santos in Colombia, who took office in 2010, just last week, said that the war on drugs in his country, which has cost Colombia so much, so much blood and so much treasure, has been like riding a stationary bicycle. They've gone nowhere, and he wants to rethink it. President Calderón, at the end of his six-year term, called the Sexenio in Mexico, which will end at the end of in 2012 after elections in July, has also come forward and said perhaps it's time to rethink this. Even our closest allies, the ones that have paid the heaviest price to work with the United States in the war on drugs, are now arguing from the presidencies of their countries that it's time to rethink it. In Brazil, in Colombia, in Mexico, um, there are alternative ways um, of looking at these problems, right, Um, of addressing the the difficulties that youth encounter with drugs, and I'm by no means advocating heroic drugs for everybody. I don't want people driving down the street uh, stoned. Um, I don't want them killing me or my family, and if people operate uh, automobiles, just like drunks operating cars under the influence of alcohol, they should probably go to jail. But if it's a victimless crime without violence, then we should think of alternatives because we could afford it better and it would be better for the people, right, who are caught up with these kinds of problems. We should make treatment available on demand. We should make rehabilitation an important part of this. Even though rehabilitation very often confronts difficulties because it's a tough process, we should keep, we should think about rehabilitation as a way of keeping people out of jail and away from committing crimes. Because while they're in rehabilitation programs, they don't commit crimes. And we should invest in our youth by investing in prevention and education programs from pre-kinder on at levels that they can deal with throughout primary and high school, throughout college, and by the way, for the generation that has graduated from college and is in their 20s that still is caught up in this and where they have um, very often the greatest problems with addiction. We would be doing the United States a favor by undertaking those kinds of reassessments about what works best and what doesn't work, what costs the most and produces the least um, result. Um, We would also be doing many countries in the Western Hemisphere a great favor because we have often been in the position of arguing that we are willing to fight to the last Colombian or willing to fight to the last Mexican in this war on drugs, but we've never been willing to fight to the last American. Dr. Begley, that's a good introduction, 40 minutes without a break. (laughs) When was the last time you were in an interview on a radio program with a large audience where they allowed you to talk uninterrupted for 40 minutes? Never, okay, but I well, just did a radio program a little earlier in Minnesota a couple of days ago. Well, <laughs> and they I, only allowed me to talk for a short period of time, but you gave me license. That's correct, <laughs> and, and I'm going to continue, but I want to uh, introduce a few more uh, talking points, if you don't mind. Sure. Do you believe in parity? Do you believe in equality? <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay, then if that's the case, then why is it in New York City young white women and men 
smoke marijuana at a higher rate than their black and brown counterparts, yet the New York Police Department is 700% more likely to arrest a young black person and nearly 400% as likely to arrest a young Latino for marijuana possession. Also in L.A. County, less than 10% are black, but more than 30% of those arrested for marijuana possession are African American. And right now, as of today, you have 81.6% of those who are arrested are arrested for possession, 18.4% for sale and manufacturing. And the possession is where you're getting directly at your nonviolent. Now, a few ideas, and then I'd like for you to dissect my ideas, please. I believe that we cannot win any war on anything until we first understand the progenitor, the underlying foundation. First, we're not having a national dialogue outside of the realms of the self-righteous religious uh, fanatics uh, and the uh, the political parasites that feed off them. Uh, Just asking people, why do you want drugs? Let's just understand. One of the largest groups of people using drugs today are not the youth. They're senior citizens. And we're not talking about why would a senior citizen be using drugs. When you you think of drugs, you think someone may be a teenager, not someone over 65. Yet the statistics actually support senior citizens' number one use. Number two, if a person commits a crime... Is it any less a crime if they weren't caught for it? Just a quick yes or no. No. Okay, so if you commit a crime and you're not caught, if you rob a bank and you didn't get caught, the fact that you tell someone you robbed a bank doesn't exonerate you from having robbed the bank, right? Absolutely not. Okay, so then the people that are caught committing a crime and are sentenced without any mercy or any compassion or any spirituality, including those who profess to be Christians, I wonder what they would do uh, if uh, if Christ were caught uh, with smoking weed today. <laughs> would they put him in jail? I know Ann Coulter would, uh, but I don't, and, and Bill O'Reilly would admonish him, uh, guilt-ridden Catholic he is. But here's a question. Why don't we ask President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, all of whom use drugs, to go involuntarily since they didn't get caught Aren't they as equally guilty of violating the law? Shouldn't they spend some time in jail? I'm just a yes or no. Well, I mean, uh, statute of limitations. No, no, I don't no, that, no that's not what I'm asking. in jail for smoking marijuana. I, I understand. So I, I wouldn't want to put President Obama, President Clinton, or President Bush, right, in jail no, for having done that. I think we have to go the other okay, way. Okay, but nor would I. My point, <laughs> my point is an allegorical point. Sure, they're equally guilty. They did it. And the, the real then, is why then, haven't they been able to modify these laws? President that's Obama correct. has done something. But basically, oh, no, no, it he, is the coalition that I mentioned that is absolutely opposed right, to any kind of flexibility at all, and given our political system and the way that our elections run, and by the way, the way the Senate, um, you know, allows a minority to paralyze things, we simply have been able to make no progress at all. The progress that's being made is being made in medicinal marijuana, it's being made in in states like California that are being crushed by the fiscal burden. Okay, just hold your your thoughts for one second. I'm going to let you talk and interrupt in a moment again. But on that point alone, President Obama's Justice Department has said that it doesn't matter if you have a state law that decriminalizes the use, marijuana, medical marijuana use. Uh, We will supersede that because federal law supersedes state law. So that that shows me a lot about the true 
background of these people. My point was, shouldn't all the people who've used marijuana not got caught? If they all went to jail, you wouldn't have but about 15 people uh, left out of jail, and especially the politicians and a lot of the religious leaders as well, no matter when they did it. So being sanctimonious and self-righteous is easy when you're not the one who was caught and you're not the one doing the time and your life turned upside down for it. Now, my three ideas are this. A, I don't believe that we can deal with drugs until we de-ghettoize America. We have placed zero emphasis upon how uh, on doing this. The money always goes to the bankers, the corporations, to the corporations associated with the uh, contractors associated with the uh, major uh, major industries or the governmental agencies. Nothing goes into inner city. Secondly, my friends in Europe, in Ireland, in Greece are telling me that where you used to be able to walk down a street in Athens and enjoy your evening, enjoy an outside dinner at 9, 10 o'clock at night, today you don't do that. A, the youth are so impoverished, the stores have been closed down, the jobs they once had don't exist, so they're relying upon drugs just to provide food for their family, and that has also led to drug competition and gangs and violence. That's everywhere in Europe. It's also true in the United States. Five years ago, there were approximately 68,000 known, clearly an understatement, uh, members of gangs in the United States. Today, it's over a million and a half. Now, now with the economy going on a really slippery slope down for about 240 million Americans, but everything looking up and good for about 70 million Americans, what you're going to have is you're going to have more young people who would never join a gang, would never dis- distribute drugs doing so simply for economic survival. And yet now we're going to take these young children, we're going to take these kids, and we're going to criminalize them, or we're going to put them into Homeland Security's database of terrorists. because we destroy we, their lives. We, we, we view, the United States government views gangs as terrorist organizations, not just criminal organizations. So then that's going to cause a blowback. We also, and lastly, <clears throat> we never ask the question, why is ALEC, the big group of corporate entities that lobby state legislators to get the governors and the legislators in the states to pass laws that work for them or rescind laws or alter laws or regulations that work against them, why haven't we shown their dirty hand, their complicit hand, in making drug laws uh, stricter? Now. My suggestion would be this, and then I'll uh, be quiet and let you give your points of view. I believe that we could handle drugs if we, A, decriminalize all possession. B, in every city in the United States, go into the areas uh, where drug interdiction is necessary. And by the way, I was in Camden, New Jersey, filming for a new documentary, and I was speaking with a lot of people using drugs. There are 200 open-air drug markets in Camden, New Jersey. 200. And and uh, and anyhow, they said, you know, this is the only way we can buy anything. But what if we went in there and we started to have uh, homes for people who are having problems with drugs and need help, psychological help, physical help, detoxification, and did that inside the inner city? Got psychologists, behavioralists, sociologists, uh, nutritionists. Uh, people who can help people. And then if instead of taking the existing uh, penalty system, give people a chance to do community service, 
b- helping rehabilitate buildings, plant gardens, community parks. So in effect, you're you're changing the ghetto. You're changing um, who is the most victimized in it, the people living there, uh, which we never think about, and also changing it around. Then also have a plan to get a lot of people who have tra- problems with drugs into the country. Get them as part of a new uh, uh, Civil Conservation Corps, but get them to go out and reforest America. Help them work wherever their talent lies in planting trees, but at the same time have communities where people in the country can learn organic garden, can detoxify. We've never tried that. We've certainly done civil conservation work, and it, it worked beautifully to help uh, to rebuild the infrastructure of America. And based upon a person's talents, you could put them either in the inner city or in the country. It would do an awful lot to help with our infrastructure and outside the cities and the urban environment to stop its decay and rot and rehabilitate it. Also, we should be putting a greater emphasis upon tutorials and to help children get back into school, get their education, and get the help they need. If we did that, instead of criminalizing it, then you take away the incentive. If there's no profit to be made, then the gangs are not interested in it. The gangs will do something else, but drugs aren't it. And drugs is the number one way throughout the world that gangs make their money. The Taliban makes its money uh, through the poppies. So if we, if we learned a lesson by getting rid of the prohibition on alcohol, which caused the growth of organized crime and treated the person at an educational level, if you're going to do drugs, tell us why, and is there anything else that we could do to help you uh, so that you did not end up hurting yourself, your loved ones, or society in the process, and then treat it as a condition that has positive outcomes instead of throwing them in jail. A, that doesn't stop them from being a drug addict. There's as much drugs that can be gotten in jail as out. B, it only re-solidifies that society doesn't like me, so when I come out, I'm going to beat up on someone, hurt someone, kill someone. And thirdly, it doesn't change a single thing. All we've done is if we're rich and powerful, as about 70 million Americans are, not 1%, 70 million. 70 million is not 1%. We're closer to about... 35% of Americans are really the people who are the more elites. You have your super elites, but then you have the people who are doing very nicely and will continue to. If they only understood what it was like to be on the other end of a sentence, be on the other end of a teenager in a juvenile detention center or an orphanage or in a gang, but we don't want to know that story. It scares us. So we pay attention to Jersey Shore and all the kind of terribly vulgar and demeaning reality television. And and I'm thinking, wow, where are our priorities? Where's our spirituality? Where is our compassion? Those are my thoughts. Continue with yours. Um, I mean, basically, I agree with much of what you said. Um, I think that uh, there's clear discrimination against minorities in the United States, by the way, in other societies, but especially in the United States, against blacks, Hispanics, and other groups, um, in, in drug policies, in drug uh, arrests, and in drug sentencing. Um, this is in part because they are 
because of racial discrimination. It is in part because they are poor and are uh, underrepresented and have very few alternatives and never have spokesmen for them. De-ghettoizing the United States is a great idea, but let's not get utopian. Um, you know, I think that there are ways that we can minimize the impact on the minority populations. And I am per specifically an advocate of decriminalization. I do not advocate, you know, heroin addiction or anything for society in general. But I think we should treat this as a public health problem, um, that we should engage in harm reduction policies rather than compounding the difficulties of the society and the individuals confront by um, jailing large numbers of them. In terms of your alternatives about organic gardening and uh, vocational training. I think that they're great ideas. We have to adjust and adapt in various parts of the country, some for urban settings, some for rural settings. One formula um, you know, is not uh, sufficient for all. One shoe doesn't fit all. But I am more than in, in agreement that what we need to do is provide alternatives to young people other than jail, that we have to uh, engage in programs of um, education, rehabilitation, treatment, vocational training. Um, we have to provide opportunities for these young people, or we are simply condemning them to that kind of life. You know, it's, it's all well and good to talk about, you know, throwing uh, former presidents in jail, but the fact of the matter is that somewhere between 70 and 90 million Americans have smoked marijuana. There's a great deal of hypocrisy in all of this. My notion here is that we should not be putting people in jail for nonviolent crimes. We should be seeking other alternatives. It's better for society. It's better for the individual. Um, it's crazy to spend $49,000 per prisoner. So I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I don't think President Obama or President uh, uh, Bush, you know, George W. Bush should have gone to jail simply for that. Um, uh, I don't think 70 or 90 million Americans should go to jail, and I don't think these young people should go to jail um, for it. I think that we are engaged in a counterproductive policy. I agree, we but do, one, one, let me interject one thing. It is my contention that if the President of the United States chose to draw a line in the sand and say, no more of this, we're not putting anyone else in jail because of drugs. We're going to help them. We're going to have a program of interdiction in a constructive way in their homes, in the schools, uh, in society at all levels. Remember, an awful lot of those white, upper-middle-class or wealthy kids go into Camden to get their drugs and then take it back. Go they into take South them back, sure. They buy them in you the know, ghetto, so, and so that's if, why the violence is concentrated in in the barrios and the ghettos. But yeah, look, Otherwise, it's hypocritical, and I believe we could have done a lot more is, if any of these people would have had the courage to take this on and and realize there's a lot of progressive minds would have supported them. I think there are a lot of progressive minds, and I'm all for it. In fact, I've worked a long time on this. But I don't think presidents can do it. And let me just say, President Obama, in his health care reform, with all of the problems and the lack of a single payer and all the rest of that, produced incredible opposition. He's still producing incredible opposition. But one of the things that people have forgotten is that that new health care reform in the United States has addressed for the very first time in our history the issue of addiction. 31 million people are being included, and addiction is now part of that. It's not just alcohol addiction. It's also drug addiction. Those are steps forward. But no president has been, has been able to wave a magic wand and do this. Indeed, many of them have waved their wands and gone in the opposite direction, despite the fact, like George W. Bush, they were themselves admitted alcoholics and drug addicts. Under these circumstances, we need to work towards policies that reduce harm, that uh, do not inflict greater damage on, the, on this 
generation or the next, and that reduce the cost to society. And I think we've seen ways of doing that. You mentioned some of them. I'm all for them. But we can't think that we're simply going to be able to wave a magic wand and solve these problems. We're going to have to work at this, and it's going to take years, but it's well worth doing. I agree. Now, we're up to about three minutes left. <laughs> oh, panel, you've taken the whole show. <laughs> I'm blaming you. Yes, you, you can, can blame me. <laughs> or you can edit out uh, the irrelevant. No, things. no, no. There hasn't been any irrelevance. You've been extremely uh, uh, generous with your intellect and your thoughts, and we appreciate it. Just your final thoughts. We have just three minutes, two and a half minutes left in our program today. Give us what you believe should be the most important steps to take to start taking each part of this, because you must deal with the for-profit privatization of the prison system. You must take all the spy organizations, intelligence organizations, which are really private contractors for profit that have and had lobbies. and lobbyists. You've got to take them into consideration. You have to take those politicians that have aligned with the uh, with the religious uh, zealots who see you know, who have that hard line. Uh, attitude about drugs, uh, using any drug shows uh, a moral weakness. Take each of these pieces, not the least of which is the individual who is using the drugs. And we have two minutes. Tell us what you believe should be the first and second steps we should begin with. Look, the, the, what drives the violence that surrounds the drug trade and the corruption abroad is money. We've got to reduce the profitability. So I am all for um, harm reduction policies that seek um, to endorse prevention and treatment, rehabilitation, um, education, rehabilitation, much more than I am for jailing people. And I think we have to start there. Um, we have to recognize that. If we can take the money out of this, which includes, by the way, private guards money, and the lobbyists that they represent and sheriffs, right, offices that uh, continue to lobby, then we could make a, a great deal of progress. But the bottom line here is that society, American society, must realize that we've been at this for 40 years in the modern phase, 100 years almost since the Harrison Act of 1914, and what we have done has failed. It's failed our, our youth. It's failed at the individual level because it hasn't solved the problem, and it's failed at the society level. We've got to change policies in a capitalist society because we are wasting money on a massive scale. We are not solving the problem. It's time to begin to address the problem by thinking about prevention, education, treatment, rehabilitation, community-based um, police, and we need to get away from the idea that other countries are going to solve a problem that is American. We cannot get them to stop producing drugs abroad if we can't get our um, society to move in, in ways that do not generate $150 billion a year more in profits. Those are the steps that we have to begin to think about. And I think there are people in the United States that are beginning to think about these things in very serious ways. And, and you know, the California initiative came close. We're going to see much more of that across this country in the next few years and in the next decade. Thank you very much, Professor Bruce Bagley. We appreciate your input.